Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and this, this is SIPREP, your Defence and Foreign Affairs magazine from BFBS in central London. You are very welcome in the next 60 minutes. We're going off to think what's happening in, in Geneva. Are the Israelis really planning to bomb Iran? Do American plans for worldwide business sanctions smack of 1984? Party time in Brighton, but is it the end of the peer show? Why a Chinese party is a must-have invite, why the assassins of Pakistan are planning more Mumbai's, why the Americans think NATO's are no-hoper. And do we really need to give handouts to a clapped-out wartime museum? With me at the SIPREP Roundtable, the Daily Mail's former diplomatic editor, John Dickey, the editor-in-chief of Stirring Trouble Internationally and former Kremlin advisor. I think the two go together, actually. Alexander Nekrasov from City University here in London, Dr. Rosemary Hollis. Everybody's having a word today. Um, here in London, General McChrystal, the commander in Afghanistan, um, he's at the International Institute for Strategic Studies explaining what he meant when he told President Obama, unless we get more troops, we could lose in Afghanistan. The Defence Secretary, well, he's been having a go down at Brighton at the conference, didn't say very much. Well, he didn't say it for very long anyway. Um, uh, <sighs> John Dickey, uh, the most important meeting, I imagine, is that yesterday President Obama held the second of his five meetings with his advisers to decide on strategy. Five meetings, three to go. Suggests big questions in Obama's mind over present, present, present strategy in Afghanistan. Indeed, uh, Gordon Brown, the Prime Minister, admitted today that there were difficult questions and he had been in consultation with the American President, but he appeared to add a new condition to any uh, response with extra troops from Britain to bolster the 9,000 troops ready there. He implied that unless there is a, what he called a new effective government, which is prepared to tackle corruption properly and is prepared to train enough police and army, then Britain would not be uh, putting forward uh, any more troops. At the same time... I'm not sure where they get them from. But no, that's more the, than other battalion the, the other aspect of a second condition was supplied by Bob Ainsworth, the Defence Secretary, who he said... He's at the party conference down at Brighton. Down at Brighton, but he's been interviewed outside the conference several times in the course of the day. Uh, after making uh, pathetic remarks about the kit and equipment not being something you get from Marks and Spencer, but required what he called a complex procurement process, <laughs> which after 12 years of, of a government is pretty handsome. But no, his condition is that Britain would uh, not be considering extra troops unless other nations were, what he said, ready to step up to the plate. In other words, those countries that are hesitant about sending people even to train uh, Afghan troops, unless they come forward, Britain will not be doing much. Rosie, the truth is um, that all these people have something to say, but nothing's going to happen until President Obama has sorted out Washington sorted out who he can get to vote for an idea of a new strategy in the Congress, who might vote, what that vote will count as uh, against, for example, his, uh, his need to get the health care bill through, etc. It's horse trading going on, in, on, on the hill at the moment, and that's all that really matters, isn't it? It certainly matters what the Americans decide they want to do. It matters also that they're having a debate about it because that sows doubts in everybody's mind about the future of this operation. And in a way, you could say that the attack being taken by the British, just described by John, 
is quite a big departure from the past. I mean, in the past, the importance of the Atlantic Alliance, the importance of sticking with the the mission and alongside Washington trumped any notion of, well, we have conditions as to Mm. whether we're going to stay or not. And uh, I don't think that's going to do the relationship any good at all. Um, Alexander Nekrasov, it's almost as if... um President Obama, and it is a much more complex sort of thing than what I'm about to say, uh, he's sort of sitting there saying, he's wondering, you know, what are we doing there? I think he is wondering what we are doing, uh, what that they're doing there, because, uh, you know, I think that they got, uh, uh, well, not upset, but they got discouraged by the fact that Hamid Karzai, they have to deal with him. There's nothing they can do about it, you know. Today, and his brother. Today, well, yes, and mm-hmm. his brother. And uh, the problem is that, two, I think it was two days ago, they said, well, he's probably going to win. Whatever happened during the election, he's going to be the next president. And I think that people in America itself are saying, so what was the point of all that... Um, all those troops sent sent to Helmand and, you know, all this voting and democracy and elections and so on. What did we actually achieve by that? Because we get the same team in Kabul again, corrupt team, and there's a problem. I attended a very interesting speech uh, this week by General Sir Rupert Smith, and he said he hated second guesses from behind the lines when he was in the front lines, but nonetheless, he did spend quite a considerable amount of time talking about... Afghanistan. And the the description that he gave to any kind of NATO operation, it would be a miracle if it could be functional. And uh, in addition, the whole speech was devoted to how, when we're talking about people's wars, and he didn't like the term hearts and minds, he wanted to talk about creating conditions where you feel more secure with our guys than you do with the enemy. And it's about creating conditions in which people feel more secure, which is a very fluid situation. And the troops by themselves are not capable of delivering that. Let me just let me give you then, Rosie, something that General McChrystal has said. He says, we don't win by destroying the Taliban, by body count, by the number of successful uh, military raids. We win when the people decide we win. Somebody explain to me how the people decide who's won. Silence. That's a tough one, yes. Yeah. I mean, that's what they're going to have to say to the President Obama, who then in turn will say to Prime Minister Brown, well, this is what we're going to be doing in the future, because what is being decided now in Washington, John, is what we will have to go along with, because you can't, you can't do your own war in Afghanistan. Indeed. Uh, although there must still be a vice, because this is another aspect of Gordon Brown. He says these are big decisions, difficult decisions, but they must be taken collectively. Mind you, um, 60% of the 100,000 troops in Afghanistan are American. Uh, there are 20 other nations that have suffered casualties. But I think it was symptomatic of the disarray in NATO that you had the newly elected um, Director General of NATO, Anders Rasmussen, a Dane, going to Washington and trying to convince the American people and the establishment. That, he looked uh, a bit shell-shocked when he came out. He did. I mean, he, he was trying to say, we are united and, and we're all trying to pull our way. Uh, but he did admit that uh, there were restrictions applied by some NATO members, uh, not only to be in a, a combat zone, but even uh, back in a so-called safe-based training uh, uh, Afghans to, to go and fight. Well, I suppose if we, if, we take, if we take a lesson from the Afghan elections, mm. if we're waiting for the Afghan people to mm. speak, then we can fudge it. Mm. <laughs> um, listen, I'm, 
I wonder, just I mean, listening to that, uh, is uh, Professor Malcolm Chalmers, head of the British Security Program at the uh, Royal United Services Institute. Um, Malcolm, I mean, we were about to talk about Iran, um, but this whole uh, sort of chatter that's going on at the moment about, uh, you know, from General McChrystal, uh, from the White House, from Bob Ainsworth, it all seems to be that we're everybody's treading water. They're waiting for. Uh, the the president to come up with either a new strategy or explain how he's going to implement General McChrystal's strategy. I think that's right. I mean, I think what General McChrystal is saying in his report to Obama is that if he doesn't get more forces, then um, they're likely to lose. But he certainly isn't providing any guarantee that if they're if, if his, if his um, request is accepted, that, that they will succeed in any sense. And Obama, understandably, I think, is hesitating before having Afghanistan define his whole presidency. He also says, doesn't he, that, um, I mean, I'm quoting from him now, he said, the efforts, i.e. the efforts in the war, uh, will not remain winnable indefinitely, and public support will not last indefinitely. These are, these are quite sort of storm warnings, in political terms, aren't they, for, for, for the United Kingdom as well as in the United States? I think that's right. I, mean, I think even McChrystal is saying that they have to not succeed over the next year, but they have to show some progress in their efforts over the next year with all these additional resources. Our public support, I think, will, will dwindle even further. If in a year, year from now, coalition leaders are still saying the situation is getting worse than the strategy clearly is, is deeply flawed. Okay, listen. Let's let's talk a bit about Iran because that's just as big as a headache for, uh, for certainly for the for the president. Which way does he go, and if he's got any support? I mean, the Europeans and the Americans um, and Iran, most importantly, are meeting in Geneva today, uh, trying to sort some process or the start of the process, I suppose, that will theoretically stop Iran building nuclear warheads. Did you hear Hans Blix talking about this today? He said it's totally irrelevant. It's the fact they've got the capability. Uh, that's all done. It's all done and dusted. Can it be as simple as that? Well, if that's what he said, I don't think that's correct. I think it does make a big difference uh, uh, between where we think Iran is now and whether they actually have uh, usable nuclear weapons and then presumably would have to pull out the non-proliferation treaty. So it's certainly salvageable. And one of the things, one of the few glimmers of hope in this whole situation is that Iranian leaders still insist that they are not seeking to build nuclear weapons. And in that respect, they're quite different from North Korea, for example. So we can provide a golden bridge for the Iranians to retreat from uh, along um, and make it clear that their security would be enhanced if they didn't go down this road, because I think if they do, then we're looking at a very severe crisis indeed over the next year or two. Yeah, I mean, there's another side of this, and that is that President Obama has sort of not actually said so, but he's hinted, and President Ahmadinejad certainly believes that the Israelis could actually uh, get in there and bomb the sites. There's clearly a, a very strong constituency in the Israeli government for taking military action, and one of the purposes of Western diplomacy is trying to demonstrate to the Israelis that there are other ways forward. But mm. the more that Iran moves towards a usable military option, the more trigger-happy the Israelis will be, even if, as is likely, the impact of military action would be only to delay um, that military option for a year or two. I mean, the, the Americans have been very clear in that, and I think the British and French agree. I One think of the interesting things I think yeah. about this meeting 
is the way in which, if anything, it's the Americans that are sounding a little bit more optimistic about talks than the Europeans, which is, of course, a reversal of where we were last year. Right. Malcolm Chalmers, thank you very much indeed. Rosie, is, um, is Ahmadinejad winding up the Israelis? I mean, those missile tests this week, I mean, not coincidental, began the start of the Geneva talks. No, but they were, they were, ah, yes, they were planned with Geneva in mind, no doubt, but also this is something that they do every year. And I think this is consistency to the Iranian position, irrespective of Ahmadinejad, which is that you, you guys have to take us seriously when it comes to all the big regional issues. And actually, we want to be bigger than just a regional player. We want to be taken seriously as an international player of standing. And secondly, since you guys insist that the top table belongs to those with nuclear weapons or the capability if they choose to have them, then we're going to be one of those too. And it's our right. Don't stop us. That's That does present... Something to talk about within which – to create a context within which you would then put the specific nuclear issue of uh, uranium enrichment. And the Americans, having not tried talking before, at least some in Washington, do see this as an opportunity to engage the Iranians on a number of issues across a spectrum which will – create a different dynamic to the whole otherwise crisis. Do the Iranians want, uh, for example, diplomatic relations with America? Would that sort of uh, cheer things up? No, no, no. They want to have a say in the big issues of the region. And they do not like being dictated to and told by powers like Britain and France you must not have nuclear weapons, you must not continue with the building of a capability for a breakout option because the international community says you mustn't. And the Iranians point out which members of the international community. This is certainly not the General Assembly of the UN. Mm. Who are you people that call yourselves the international community? Just a quick question then, an important one, that you spend a lot of time in that region. Would... Israel bomb Iran? Only because they've said they would, not because it would solve anybody's problem. And and you have to explain that because, I mean, Israelis wouldn't just go and bomb because they said they would. Yes, they would, because the whole uh, Israeli defence doctrine depends on their enemies knowing that they get a bloody nose if they tamper with Israel, even if it's not in Israel's long-term interests. Do we think they will? uh, Well, actually... um, just said now uh, that that there is definitely a lobby in Israel that thinks in order to be understood in the region the way they p- wish to be understood in the region, they have to hit hit when they say they will and hit hard. John? I think there are a large number of people, like their foreign minister, Abigail Lieberman, who, if it came to the crunch, would rather have Israel in ashes than allow Iran to dictate what happens. I think That's, we used to call it Masada, didn't we? The Masada complex. Yes. Except that the, the key point here is <clears throat> Israel will not be in ashes. The fallout will be on the Arab allies of the United States, mm. the Gulf states. They'll get hit by the missiles that the Iranians have been developing and the Iranians have said so mm. and so the flak will fall in Washington and across the Arab region. Well, Alexander, a little bit mm. uh, is that Plan B seems to be getting even more uh, attention than certainly it deserves. The idea that you can 
uh, get sanctions to exert pressure on, on Iran. I've never seen sanctions working anywhere. And in any case, they take a long time to work. It's, it's not the same. In, in Rhodesia, for example, mm, yes. it went on for 14 years. And you could go there and, and buy French perfume and, and buy uh, wines. Uh, you couldn't get cows conflicts, but you got an alternative. But um, to think that you could bring Iran to its knees with stopping the... Look at Iraq. Yes. Yeah. 13 years of sanctions. Alexander, something else here, isn't there, that the Americans are talking sanctions in a different style, and that is uh, being able to exert influence and stopping the Iranians and individuals, stopping them investing in big uh, uh, global organizations and stock exchanges, etc. It sort of smacks of 1984, doesn't it? It is the big brother, we are going to tell you how to run that bit of the world. Yes, it does. And unfortunately, I don't really see how they can target the sanctions, you know, at, at specific leaders and specific companies. It usually hits the people who are, you know, the ordinary people, as we say. And uh, but, what I find... But, but surely this time, <coughs> the plan is to target shipping and mm, insurance yeah. companies. Mm, yes, well, uh, the, well it's part of, of would acquire it's insurance. Part of the plan. But, but what I'd like to, to, to remind them... A lot of that, is that can, uh, I, can I just check something, uh, uh, John? Uh, that in, the whole thing about the insurance, insurance on the shipping of uh, uh, super tankers, for example, that's mostly done on the on the on London exchange. And Monimo, it, and so it's financial d- operation controlled largely from London, uh, partly also from Frankfurt, and therefore. Um, so uh, Obama would need those guys on board. Indeed, but also uh, it would be a great um, sort of prevention uh, of oil companies getting involved if they couldn't get insurance. Uh, There's one important thing here, because there is disagreement between the allies about what actually is the stage that Iran is at. Because the American intelligence service, if you remember, last year said they don't do anything since Mm. 2003. The American intelligence service still insists that there's nothing being done in Iran, uh, as, as regards designing nuclear weapons. Right. So um, there's a problem here. The Iranians probably will say that today in Geneva to Americans. So what about your intelligence services report? They're saying we've stopped. So why is the pressure now building, you know, the, this momentum again? You can't uh, say you've stopped if you've never had one. Right. Yeah. Okay. Listen, talking no, about uh, stopping, uh, it's the end. Uh, we're going to shift on, actually. Uh, it's because it's Labour Party time at Brighton. And so what? Well, maybe so quite a lot. The BBC's political affairs correspondent, Rob Watson, has been there all week in Brighton. Uh, uh, Rob? Absolutely, pretty much from the, uh, from the uh, beginning to the bitter end. Ah, oh dear, Brighton Rock again. Um, it was today, it was the turn of the Defence Sec- Secretary, Bob Ainsworth. I mean, as a, as a defence man as well, did you hear anything from the Secretary of State that you hadn't heard? No, I didn't. To be mm. fair, I wasn't really expecting to. It was a restatement of UK policy in Afghanistan, why it is that we're in Afghanistan, why it is why this yeah, why we need to be there. Right. So we are losing... A lot of other Just how extraordinary it is, given that we're at war. Yeah. country away with a large part of our armed forces, that Afghanistan got so little mention at all. Um, tell me, there's another side of this with your political hat on. Um, unkindly, somebody is saying this is the end of the end of the peer show for Labour. This could be their last uh, conference in government. Is that the sense you get? 
Oh, absolutely. There was one uh, one delegate that we were speaking to last night who, uh, with this broad Scouser accent, was saying, "We're doomed. We're doomed." So I, I think, despite some of the not uh, a safe seat, obviously, and senior ministers, an awful lot of the delegates think that the game is up, Christopher. But it does mean something in terms of uh, what we were talking about there, for example, Afghanistan, uh, uh, Trident, uh, defence spending, the A400 um, aircraft maybe going into the basket of cuts for the Treasury. Uh, but would a Tory government uh, be any different as far as the British forces are concerned? The, the short answer is we, we don't really know. Certainly, I've spoken to a number of senior conservative sources and have tried to get an answer to that very question you put. And so far, we just don't know. One imagines that at least some of the big ticket is going to go. After all, a conservative government can't be seen to be cutting just the things that it believes that uh, those that don't support it like. It'll have to be seen to be cutting some of the things that traditional conservative supporters like. So... Either way, I've been warned by both Labour and Tory sources alike that it's a, a fairly grim outlook. Rob Watson, thank you very much indeed. Um, John Dickey, I don't know how many conferences you've watched in 20-odd years mm. or 30 years, um, but this is the first time I can remember where big issues like a war mm. and, and whether Britain is prepared for it has actually become a conference issue. I mean, for example, the 1982 uh, um, uh, Falklands War well, was all over. Mm, yes, it, it dominated, it dominated the, the place. But uh, no, I think it's been helped by, by one unusual factor, and that is the decision of the Sun newspaper to abandon um, support of the Labour government and turn to the Conservatives. And you could see the piles of unsold copies of the Sun and others being torn up. I think this emphasises the lack of trust in the direction in which the Labour government has been going for the last few years, and that has spilled over into defence, into uh, health, into security. Um, Alexandra, what do you, how, do you, how do you see this whole sort of... It's almost a hiatus, isn't it, again, another hiatus, with uh, people sort of almost writing off the government, and yet there are big issues like, what do we do in Afghanistan? What do we do about Trident? What do we do about A400s and aircraft? It's a very dangerous situation, by the way, when the government is so weak and there are so such major issues to be decided, not just the economy, mm. uh, the military and so on. And I think that that is probably a waste of time until Labour goes, because nothing will happen. You know, we, we are talking about what the Conservatives will do. Why should they even talk about it at the moment? Because <laughs> they are not the, in government. And by the way, the Conservatives will have a free hand, because what they, what they will say... When they come to power, they say, look at the mess we've inherited. Look at, we can only do it, do something if we have, take drastic measures. And everybody will understand. And what I'm actually saying here, though, um, uh, Rosie, is that uh, up until this year uh, and the prospect of an election, mm. I don't think it's ever mattered to the defense community, to the military, who was in power. I mean, Labour, for example, has always believed, for example, that it has uh, a duty to support defence industries, not always British or BAE or, or uh, whoever. But well, uh, and of course, I? there are jobs there. Uh, <sighs> and you know, I was I was working at Rusi when when Iraq invaded Kuwait. Yeah. And I, uh, the Labour Party, yes, and the Labour Party was in 
opposition and uh, I, I was consulted by them as to what the possible effects of sanctions on Iraq mm-hmm. could be to reverse the invasion mm-hmm. of Kuwait. And they had in mind the Falklands War and that they were on the wrong side when it came mm-hmm. to the Falklands War. And they said that they couldn't possibly take up a position in 1990 which would look like they were going to let the Iraqis get away with it. And they'd made this political calculation. I, at the time, had to say to them, no, I can't guarantee mm. you that sanctions would work to get Iraq out yeah. of Kuwait. Now, if you're in the armed forces, presumably, you want to be useful in a situation like that. You don't want to say, oh, you don't need us. You can do it economically. I mean, I thought one thing driving the services was justification of their budgets. You could have a war. Mm. Let's put it that way. Listen, uh, talking about wars, I want to move on because we are getting short of time. Um, do you remember um, last year um, the militant attacks on the hotels in Mumbai? Uh, we should do because there's a sort of, could be a knock-on to resolving what we do in Afghanistan. There's a report sculling around this week from intelligence agencies that 10 months after that atta- those attacks by Pakistan-based militants from the Lashkar military, a militant group, the group is in, not only intact, but it's determined, John, mm. to strike India again. Mm. Um, and w- what this tells us about Pakistan is, is that it's ex- even more important to get that sort of business uh, resolved, isn't it? It's extremely worrying. If you go down in Whitehall and talk to people at the Foreign Office, you'll find that Lashkar Khan is uh, high on the list of terrorists. It was, in fact, created in the early uh, 90s um, to deal with uh, aspirations of the Muslims in Kashmir against India. And, in fact, there is some evidence to show that the main Pakistan intelligence agency, the Inter-Services Intelligence, trained and funded Lashkar. Or ignored what they were doing. And even now, after the horrific example of the uh, terrorist attacks in Mumbai, it seems to have increased the support for that organization. There are stories that up to 100,000 people are members of Lashkar Gah. Yeah. You see, Rosie, if you go to, um, if you talk to people like John does and I can do in Whitehall, they say, yeah, now look, listen to this, because unless they get these sort of military, militant groups under, under some sort of heel and, and put them down, then we cannot convince the Americans that the Pakistanis are having a hard time and they're doing their best. And if you can't do that, then the Americans lose further confidence in, in the Pakistan government. Does that make sense? Well, just about. It seemed a bit tortuous, but... That's the way I put it. (laughs) uh, it, 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 In Afghanistan, as we were discussing earlier, if the objective is is the population and the condition Mm. of the population, uh, it's no easier for the Pakistani government in Pakistan than it is for the NATO forces in Afghanistan to make people feel differently on a day-to-day basis when you're not part of the fabric of society. I I really think it's time for the major players in NATO to stand back from both Afghanistan and Pakistan and say, are we on a hopeless quest to change the dynamics at the very grassroots level or to require of the government that they do our business for us I mean, isn't this about a struggle for uh, the 
the competing narratives, if you want. What the hell is a competing narrative? <laughs> competing, <laughs> the competing, I'm, I, I'm happy to say yes. that General Sir Rupert Smith used the term the other day as well. It's all right for generals to use it. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, it's who wins. Yes. As I, I think you were asking us earlier, when the economist says that Hezbollah won in 2006, as opposed to Israel, then Hezbollah won, whatever the material conditions on the ground. And so long as the Pakistani government is on the side of the West, they're going to be losing the Hearts and Minds campaign on the ground in Pakistan. Right. Talking about winning, Angela Merkel, she's she done it. The well, that's no surprise, yes, quite frankly. I mean, uh, the socialists uh, really got uh, hammered, and that, that was expected. It's good news for the rest of the Western lines in this respect, in as much as a coalition with the FDP, the Liberals, is liable to be more outward-looking than uh, the one with the Social Democrats' coalition with the Christian Democrats. Right. Now, anybody seen the stuff that's sculling around that she and uh, Nicola uh, Sarkozy... In, in Paris, uh, uh, trying to set up their own defence group, their own second, uh, their own... With their own, headquarters, too. Uh, with their headquarters, right. John. Uh, that is uh, going to change, the, if it gets ahead, that's going to change the way that uh, Europe thinks defence. And it might also sideline the Brits. Uh, I mean, Sarkozy has always been uh, keen to uh, establish some sort of uh, dominant position outside of NATO, and this is one way of doing it. He and Merkel will combine not only in defence, but in industrial opportunity and in the immigration policies as well. Yeah, it's all going to change. Even talks of, of cabinet uh, members going from one place to the other, from Berlin to Paris. Wow, it's, it's a full Europe. Not hey, coming to London. I come think. on, we got thirty seconds. This half, it's uh, it's coming up to half past the hour. And you're listening to Setup, your Defence and Foreign Affairs magazine from BFBS with me, Christopher Lee. Um, don't forget, you can listen again to Setup whenever you want, or podcast by going to bfbs.com forward slash Setup. Now, uh, it's time to think aloud with John Dickey, Alexander Lekrasov, and Rosemary Hollis, and I hope uh, from Washington, Dr. Constanza Stelzer-Müller, who is the Senior Transatlantic Fellow at the German Marshall Fund in, in Berlin. Um, I want to talk about, if I may, uh, arms control. There's a whole lot of stuff going on about arms control, especially the Non-Proliferation Treaty at the moment. But I've been wondering, um, Constance, it, it, uh, Constanza, is, is arms control sort of relevant now? Because it was nothing more, wasn't it, uh, uh, as a sort of reflection of the relationships between the two superpowers when they signed most of these agreements? I think that's not entirely true. Um, I, I do think arms control was relevant in the Cold War world, and it's very relevant now. And um, I think what you've left, left out, really, is the process. It's true that arms control treaties, if you will, freeze the status quo, but it's a status quo that's been arrived at by very careful negotiation. And those ne negotiations in themselves are confidence-building measures. But is there any um, evidence? Let's, let's go, I don't know where you would start, but from, from the 60s onwards, the arms control agreements, is there any evidence that agreements really control the ambitions of... Uh, the other nations, therefore, uh, other than the two superpowers? Uh, no, which is why, well, the, um, agreements only control the ambitions of those who become members to the agreements. Uh, that's, uh, if you will, sort of legal logic. But um, the, which is why there's always been an effort made to bring other powers into these treaties. 
the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty being a case in point. Now, um, obviously, those who don't want to be brought into a treaty regime aren't and won't be. But it does create a normative framework, a, if you will, a standard, a political, legal, and moral standard. And those countries who are unwilling to let themselves be held up to that standard um, become somewhat obvious to the public eye. Fascinating, a uh, couple of weeks ago, um, it was treated as, as almost as, as a spectacle. The I, I, Indians launched satellite, um, or in fact, I think about seven satellites and probes. And I was reminded of October, um, this time in 1957, when the first Sputnik appeared. And everybody said, oh, isn't that wonderful? But then there are other people who said, well, hang on, you know, if they can put one into space, then that's the start of intercontinental ballistic missile. The spread of space-based systems has produced, um, I don't know, perhaps a vulnerability in the whole system of arms control, hasn't it? Well, uh, I think one could put it even more brutally. Space-based systems, satellites in other words, have become the backbone not just of our military operations, not just of our intelligence gathering, but of our communications. They've also become the backbone of our civilian knowledge and commercial societies. No communication, no automated telemachines, uh, no Internet is possible without satellites. And these satellites are uh, very lightweight, they're very vulnerable, they're very fragile, and they're actually quite difficult to protect where they are, which is why the only way to make sure that nothing bad happens to us if a satellite, if something happens to a satellite, whether through accident or by design, is to have redundancy. In other words, to have lots of them. And the difference between now and the Sputnik era is that by now, a lot of countries are able, of putting, um, uh, are able to put assets into space. And therefore, they are all vulnerable. I was thinking, for example, something which is so commonplace now, uh, and that's the GPS system, operating off a constellation of uh, satellites, admittedly uh, and geostationary, but could it easily be taken out or degraded anyway. Well, hence, hence the redundancy, hence, hence, hence the need to have lots of satellites. So if one or two break down, you still have the other ones transmitting. That, at this point, really is the, the only way to do it. There, is, um, there have been efforts to, at what um, the uh, practitioners call hardening, in other words, in making these assets physically less vulnerable, but that also makes them heavier, and it means you need more fuel to keep them uh, to, to, to get them up to, 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 their, to their orbit, um, and it can also lower their lifespan. So um, that's a bit of a conundrum. And the, if, if you add to that one issue that you haven't mentioned, which is space debris, um, ha- uh, nearly half a century of space launchers of all kinds have let an awful lot of debris in space, space debris which can, if it comes into collision with a satellite, very, um, very likely destroy it. And... We're talking about, what, eight, nine, ten thousand 10,000 objects? Um, you know, the different calculations. Some of them are no larger than a paint flake, but even a paint flake-sized object can actually put a dent into the window shield of a, of a space shuttle, as has happened. So the, the real need, or, or the, 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 the space debris issue, which has become quite urgent, has actually created a need for kind of a conversation, um, not just including uh, the Americans, the Russians, and other spacefaring but really all of us that depend on space-based assets for our commercial and, and, and civil lives to have some kind of a multilateral agreement that would be akin to a traffic, uh, to, to a traffic system. 
um, with rules on leaving debris in space, with rules on, on when to launch. And I think that the time for that has come and it would be um, a confidence-building measure. Right. Constanza Stelson-Miller, thank you very much indeed. You see, John, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, we, we, we talk about non-proliferation treaties and um, sort of sharpening up salt and things like this. There's Constanza there saying, well, hang on, it's looking out of space. Uh, you can switch off the satellites. Mm. I mean, imagine switching off sky. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but it's the equivalent, isn't it? You switch off a satellite. Mm. And you can well, throw you the mind, whole of the communications I, I want to go back business. To, you know, it's the battle over who, whose narrative triumphs, irrespective of objective facts on the ground. Who's captured which town? How many people have been killed on the ground? Which is it's, what's it's happening it's in Afghanistan. Condu- exactly. It's all being conducted in terms of who the winner is in a much larger global sense. And satellite television, when you said switching off the sky... Uh, th- is part of the battle. I didn't mean battle. sky television, no, I no, meant no. switching off the sky. I know, but right. I saw it as, <laughs> as two ways of interpreting what you were saying. I'm just worried that we've gone from the narrative to the uh, <laughs> n- normative uh, framework. But uh, I think one of the most interesting aspects of arms control... Not the blue perfect, though, John. No, Not the blue perfect. one of the most interesting aspects of, of arms control goes back to a man called... Um, John Major, you remember him? He was the mm. fellow who had the extracurricular relationship with, with someone. Curry, so with someone. Uh, yeah, someone. But um, yes. he put forward a very sensible proposition to the UN to control the export of small arms. And this did for a time have some effect in the way that arms were being trafficked from Ukraine and other parts of Eastern Europe. But, but the arms race, you see, started uh, to move into space a long time ago. You know the Russians, they put in the space station. The reasoning behind it was that the arms race will move into space. And you will be able to um, stop the ballistic missiles, American or whatever, well, this is going from back to space. Principle and that's why they SDI, said there it? has to be somebody up there all the time. To, 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 to control the, uh, the system. No, but that was the whole Stop. idea, because if you remember, the Russians put the space station in first. Can you imagine there. your satellites getting clamped? Yeah. <laughs> no, it's for destroying uh, ballistic missiles <laughs> yeah. in the silos, but rather was, than allowing them given back, to come out. If you go back to, what, the 1960s, and there was uh, quite a military move, certainly from uh, what was then the Soviet Union, to develop a system... Uh, called fractional bombardment uh, systems. And the idea is that you could spin around, like little Sputnik, you spin around all the time, but you're loaded up with warheads. And then you can control that either from your space station. Oh, you can or do whatever. it with a laser beam, by the way. It was already discussed then. What? Uh, when the Russians started pioneering space, they were already talking about laser weapons. Laser weapons that can neutralize a, a missile okay, in its silo. Let's put this in the greater context of what we really were talking about, and that's arms control. I come back to my point, which uh, Constanza Stelson Miller doesn't actually go along with, but never mind for the moment. The original and the biggest arms control programs and treaties and all the protocols uh, right up until, until now were really products of the Cold War. Absolutely. Of course. Simple as that. Yes. But, but also you had two main players. And everybody just signed up to a well, two camps, mm. basically. You had two players, mm. but with others, you know, Yes, okay, but one summit 
with with two sides to the table because could no. do it. We're but not do, now. Not now. No. And we're just talking about moving from the G8 to the G20 because the G8 doesn't capture mm. all the players that that have to be mm. on board to achieve something. Mm. But it's all about money too. Don't forget that there's a new element here that, that they want to save money. Who the Russia, well, for example, the start the new start treaty will save the Americans about fifty billion dollars a year, and the Russians about twenty something billion. Well, they're bringing down their warheads to fifteen hundred, mm. right? So Each. that will save them fifty billion, the American mm. side, and the Russians about twenty four something, twenty five billion. So money started to. Can interfere I try this on this. a bigger scale? I mean. Do they actually matter, these arms control treaties? Because, uh, I mean, uh, I always saw arms control treaties as really sort of along these sort of lines. You, you ban what you don't want the other side to have. You ban what you don't really want anymore. Mm. And you ban what you can't make. Not for the not for the moment. Yes, anyway. but again, if the club consists really of only two players... You can, you can get a it, nodding agreement. Uh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, the, the, still cons- that still consists of mm. two players because the 90% of the warheads are still with Russia and America. Yes, but it, Obama is confusing us all by talking about wanting global disarmament, mm. which is well, that's not at all what arms control is about, that's as you just control. said. You see, the other side of it is that if you take uh, North Korea, signed the Non-Proliferation mm. Treaty. So what? Uh, India said, no, no, we're not signing anything. Mm. And so they've carried on. Well, then I would then want to go back to this Israel rules hasn't business signed, has and, and, and talk of the international community. I think uh, Gordon Brown and Barack Obama and a few others invoke the international community mm-hmm. as a wish, not as a reality. Yes. They want, they want to believe they're on the side of the bulk of the players. There's a civilized society out there. They all abide by the rules. But as we've seen since the invasion of Iraq in 2003, it's been do as I say, not as I do. But yeah, the Americans the and the you. Russians will never, ever cut their nuclear arsenals to zero, ever. It doesn't ever. matter, though, does it? No, no, we can talk, they can talk about it. You know, the, it's what Gorbachev was saying, the same thing with Reagan. Oh, let's well, build well, that a... Rick of it, uh, uh, yes, let's build this yes. non-nuclear war. But mm-hmm. the, the fact is this, Russia wants to have a nuclear arsenal because there's China. Yeah, but come it's back. Simple yes, that. But, yeah, but we're getting away that. from the main point, or the main point I'm trying to put across, and that is, I can't see that um, it, it's nice if everybody sort of controls the amount of weapons mm-hmm. they've got, but does that stop them actually having some, and does it stop them going to war if necessary? Answer? No, no it doesn't, no, because it's symbolic. So why do you do it? Well, they might not be going to war with each other. Well, it doesn't matter if you go to war with anybody. Mm-hmm. Why yes, do you but have we know that the two agreements? superpowers, if they had gone to war with each other, would have obliterated the mm-hmm. planet. But that actually yes, but saved the planet. That's the, well, that was the point. Yeah, but there are other countries that are not really covered by this. And the difficulty is that the United Nations, very little is mandatory. I mean, you can accept resolutions as Israel has over the years and done nothing about them. Therefore, until you change the way the international organization is structured and change the security council, I don't think you'll get any advance on stopping but, the But the point we're missing here is that people don't like to talk about this, but what? nuclear weapons are preventing wars, big ones, I mean huge ones. Are they? Because, because, of course they do. Because look at what mm. happened, you know, after this. No, 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 hang on, hang on. Nuclear weapons are not preventing wars. 
They are preventing There's war. There's no because, evidence of because, that at all. Because America, Do you think would, America, would America have gone to would war with the Soviet Union? America started a big war knowing it would be obliterated. The, the Soviet Union was in exactly the same situation. The generals, they were obviously saying things and, you know, we can do this and that. Tactical Now, Alexander, you are making some assumption that they might have gone to war anyway. No, no, I'm just saying that... Well, neither of you can prove your case. However, no, I think there's a great deal of validity no, 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 no. into Alexander's case. That it, if you it know was, you're going to be destroyed, you can't start a big war. That was the whole point that, of... The, that, well, that was a mutual deterrence system, yes. but it works. But it works. The mutual so short destruction. Ones. It but they're the only the ones. ones... But they were the ones that mattered. You see, they would have started the world they war. That was the problem. They don't matter so in a sense, that. we should remember that. that okay, it let's, let's, just, us to avoid let's, let's just, just try, try two other things here. Uh, one is that we're, we're getting caught in megatonnage and sort of stuff. What about things like chemical warfare, uh, biological warfare treaties? They can't get those right. And one of the problems with those anyway is verification. And so the really important things, like chemical warfare, you can do a dusting and you get the wind right and you can cause all sorts of damage. I mean, look at what happened in Iraq. With the, yes, with the but it can also blow back. So I think mm. there's, there's a couple of factors that mean that there's not as much proliferation. But there's no CW or biological no. uh, 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 agreements that mm. everybody signed up to mm. who would actually probably get into that business anyway. Because at one time, chemical weapons were the, it was the cliche they were yeah. poor men's yeah. nuclear Look, weapons. That was almost a problem at Geneva because whatever what? was negotiated, it was the on site verification that, that caused it to break down. I mean, the, the, the Russians could not now, accept. verification, John, we're back to what uh, Constanza was talking mm. about earlier about her satellites. Yes. Because that is the first sign, you stick up KH-11 up there and you say, right, I can see movement, or mm. I can see a, um, you know, a railway line that mm. suddenly stops in the middle of the desert, something fishy going on there. I mean, whether it is or not, whether well, there were weapons of mass disappearance or destruction. Puma under that mountain, you just knew something was going on, but you didn't know precisely what was going on. Until you get on-site verification by the uh, IATA uh, experts, you won't know exactly what's been done there. Mm. Um... We'll come back to this um, sometime. We always do. Um, I'm rather surprised that this hasn't got more coverage than, it's, uh, than it has. Because on this day, 1st of October in 1949, Mao Zedong declared the People's Republic of China. Um, and modern China is therefore 60 years old today. Happy birthday, China. Um, Kerry Brown is the China watcher at the London think tank, uh, Chatham House. This is quite a sort of a must-have invitation, isn't it, to that party, uh, Kerry? Um, well, I mean, obviously these sort of anniversaries happen every uh, decade, so uh, I can understand after the um, you know intense interest in China last year during the Olympics that this is a sort of slightly you know sort of more muted story. But it's obviously been celebrated pretty intensely within China with these sort of big. Uh, Tiananmen Square in Beijing demonstrations and uh, and you know the sort of military uh, kind of performance there. So it's certainly a, a big piece of news in China. It's also kind of caused a bit of a you know sort of tense uh, sort of period around and, and during and no doubt after the celebrations where the government is a bit sort of uneasy and, and making sure that no one spoils the atmosphere. Yeah, you know, I was talking to a couple of people who were at the G20 summit in Pittsburgh. Um, uh, last week, 
And they were saying, you know, um, we were being told in these fringe meetings, China, it's the future we all have to buy into. Is, is that exaggerating the importance of, 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 of that state in world economics, strategic thinking? Well, it's uh, big and uh, creates a lot of pollution and uses a lot of energy. And in that sense, uh, it's become kind of like a shared problem. I mean, I think the uh, great challenge really is that China has developed an incredibly complicated uh, modern economy, a very mixed economy and, you know, quite a sophisticated economy. There's no sort of disputing that. And yet it's uh, kind of with a um, political system that's from the mid-20th century and is not, I think, fit for purpose. I mean, the Communist Party of China has, the Communist Party of China has monopoly on power still. It doesn't want to deal with any political opposition, any organized political opposition. doesn't accept uh, an independent uh, judiciary. Uh, it's got huge military muscle now, uh, which it's not often very transparent about. What's it going uh, to do got, with it? Anybody know? Um, well, its key issue is, is Taiwan, which is unresolved, and it's never given up the threat of force. It's obviously got four other nuclear powers on its borders, uh, Pakistan, India, uh, Russia, and North Korea. I mean, well, North Korea, we think is a nuclear power, pretty sure, sure it is. And so it's got to face off those threats. Uh, I mean, it doesn't. It, it's got key interests in Africa and the Middle East and Latin America now. It's very much searching for resources in these places. So, so you know, in that sense, if that's a future we're buying into, it's a pretty complex, you know, future with a few pretty big issues for, for potential conflict. It's also got a lot of problems at home. I mean, it's not getting all its own way, isn't it? I mean, I read a couple of figures that there's something like 10 million out of work, um, which even in a, a country the size of uh, China, that's quite a lot. It has still the problem of Tibet, if indeed China sees it as a problem, we see it as a problem. It has this sort of uh, lots of protests and or apparently civil protests as well. Yeah, last year, according to unofficial statistics, there are 115,000 mass incidents, which ranges from, you know, small demonstrations to, you know, riots that involve up to 10,000 people. Uh, it's got 200 million migrant workers who live in a kind of legal, you know, sort of uh, grey zone because they don't have uh, rights to live in cities, although many of them have been there for years. Uh, it's got, uh, you know, problems of, uh, you know, great inequality between uh, the coastal areas and the inner areas. And I think the biggest problem is probably Xinjiang, where it's got, uh, you know, ethnic tensions in Central Asia linked to very, very complex militant, you know, sort of Muslim movements that I think the Chinese government has never really taken seriously until earlier this year when it realized with over 200 dead in Xinjiang in the north um, east of, sorry, northwest of China, uh, this is a serious, serious problem and a, and a serious security problem. I was looking on a couple of the blogs and the um, sites, and in translation, there is a, a, a site appeared from signed Old Comrade. And, I mean, this, the site would have you believe that this person might be of some authority in China. And he was saying that 60 years of party rule have not been glorious and it's still not established basic political ethics. Well, that's hard to sort of define any of that, isn't it? Well, I mean, there's two arguments. One is that in 1949, when the Communist Party took power, the average life expectancy in China was 35 years. Now it's uh, 74, 75 and rising. It's gone from, you know, being disunited and 
you know, wracked by poverty and famine to, you know, a country which uh, is, you know, prosperous and uh, getting more prosperous. On the other hand, as, as I said, the problem is political reform. What's going to happen uh, when you've got more and more people, uh, you know, middle class or, uh, you know, sort of other groups who want um, some kind of participation in decision making, who are going to courts, who are demonstrating, who are going to non-government organizations and live in a kind of, you know, there, there's all sorts of uh, ways in which at the moment there's no um, appetite by the political leadership in China to, to deal with these big issues. They're regarded as too difficult. And my fear is that they'll be, uh, you know, kind of that they won't be dealt with for longer and longer until the time when suddenly there there's a potentially a, you know, very nasty sort of confrontation and it becomes incredibly unstable. And there's a history of that in China. There is a very long history of that sort of intense, uh, you know, sort of instability. Right, Kerry Brown, Chatham House. Thank you very much indeed. It's. What's fascinating is that if you go to the UN Security Council General Assembly this week, what's going on today in Geneva, John? Um, we're all talking about what could be done about um, uh, uh, Iran, but nothing can be done about Iran, more or less, unless the Chinese agree. True. Um, as a member of the Security Council, they have a, a veto power where they want to be isolated totally if Russia goes along with uh, France, uh, United States, uh, Britain and Germany. It's another matter, but uh, I agree. Um, China can play a lone hand for a long time. I mean, it's buying up half the world, it seems to me. I mean, uh, uh, Alexander, I mean, any time somebody sort of says, I've struck oil... They get in there and buy into it. Yes, because uh, I think China has no future, none at all, because <laughs> I have lived in the Soviet Union and I have seen how elements of the free market are starting to be, get introduced into the communist system, but the economy is still distorted. That's the problem. A communist dictatorship has no future. I'm sorry, but that's how it is. I'm sorry I'm spoiling the party no, no, mood no, no. in China. It's, it's, but yeah. this is very important mm. to understand. This society based on this communist dictatorship does not survive. There's more, uh, but there's and, far more uh, And, and the, the, more, the more they have those free market elements, as they call it, coming in, it, it self-destructs from inside. It starts to self-destruct. I think I, we will see China split up eventually. Into what? Because I have spoken to some Chinese dissidents by chance and they said to me that the people who are uh, yielding the main power now are the communist apparatchiks in the provinces. But no, do you the, think they're going the to have perestroika and Glasnost No, 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 they'll China? start to fall apart. And yeah. they said that basically these are like nations ready mm. to become independent. Because there is a lot, lot of resentment now. But that's implosion. No, a lot of resentment on the ground because the Communist Party is boasting, you know, the economy is getting better, all those statistics. They don't really mean much when you go into the, you know, the countryside. And all this capitalism, wonderful capitalism, doesn't really reach there. It's all in the big cities. And it's the same as in Russia, exactly the same in the Soviet Russia, I mean. And this is a recipe for disaster. And that's why I see China not really becoming a superpower. Of course, at the moment, they, they are seen as a strong nation with a potential future. I don't really see that. Rosie, I mean, this thing like superpower and, um, and capitalism, is that they're all you know, really good Western terms, aren't they? I mean, these are our terms. As good, good hack journalists use them since 1926. Yeah, and in academic terms, I, uh, in international politics, which I'm now teaching as well as continuing to study, I... We need to see things in era in terms mm. of the way global power was organized. 
And whether we like it or not, I'm listening to this conversation around the table and thinking we're all resisting the fact that the old order is over and we don't know what the new one's going to look like. And it's very uncomfortable to be living in this period of transition. It's not going to be dualism, two superpowers and two uh, attendant blocks of mm-hmm. powers. And actually, it looks like the P5 is now overtaken. What's P- Hang on, what's the P5? The permanent five members of the Security right, Council okay. do not represent all the players that have got to be brought on board. Hence the G20. Yes, but I think 20 is too big a number to get to coordinate when it, all these players are run by politicians who are looking at their political futures, who who have more to gain in the near term from competing with each other than cooperating. So I think we're in for a period of flux. There will be no overall control. There will be no overall consensus. But at least we won't be run by Big Brother. Yeah, but if we're not run by Big Big Brother, um, then we're in danger of getting into local wars. We're in danger of getting well, into... Well, since when, when have we stopped? Yeah, you're right, aren't you? Yeah. But it's the financial side of it eventually, isn't it? That, that, that sorts things, the economics of it. You well, see, the great industrial revolution and the post-industrial revolution, the IT age, the Western powers have done pretty well out of it. Mm. They've had a good two and a half centuries. So we shouldn't really We've be We've always done well out of China, haven't we? I mean, the opium wars, uh, I mean, that's how we, you know, and Hong Kong, that's how we got Hong mm. Kong. But I want, to, I want to move on to something else, uh, but, but it... it it's, it's part of it. We're talking about the United Nations and the Security Council. It, um, it's, John, it's, 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 it's pretty standard at this time of the year. I say, oh, the United Nations, they have these big jamborees. They really mm-hmm. don't get anywhere. I was actually last week rather impressed with what was going on in the United Nations. It was a lot going on there. A lot of people coming well, up with I things. I was disappointed, frankly. Uh, For example, um, <laughs> Obama and Netanyahu, uh, the Israeli Prime Minister, got nowhere. Uh, well, Gaddafi said a few good things. Gaddafi, Come on. Yes, uh, <laughs> Ahmadinejad, despite all his extraordinary uh, rhetoric, did put some good points across about the need to change the structure of the organization, to uh, make it more representative of the, of the power uh, distribution mm. throughout the world. But... Um, it wasn't an occasion when the leaders of this world were, were doing much more than photo opportunities, I'm sorry to say. Yeah. Like well, before, I... by the way, it shouldn't be based in America. Mm. That's mm. the big problem with the United Nations. Mm. It should be moved somewhere else. Geneva? There's but, a lot of it in Geneva already. Well, well I think there should be in Africa somewhere, Asia, because they're really, oh. they're really, they're, they're pretending no, to come be... On, a... Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. You oh. can't put in Africa. There are no good restaurants in Africa. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, sorry about Africa. You've um, been everywhere in Africa, of course. Yes, I have. Um, I want to talk to something much more important. This is the old wartime code-breaking facility at Bletchley Park is to get a £500,000 handout from the National Lottery to spruce it up for visitors and the national memory. Why on earth do we keep something like Bletchley going? If you're not because careful, it was I'll very talk about important. narratives again. Because oh, you it was won't very important. I mean, if you think of the Enigma code being broken uh, by the great people that yeah, worked so at Bletchley. Now, John? It's something you want to be proud of and, and, and show to other generations that this is a great uh, organisation that was established was, largely by all the people. why do you need to keep a place like that going? Well, because they'll have a bar, you know, mm-hmm. come on, it's mm-hmm. going to be a, a, a funky Nations place. <laughs> now, seriously, if you were going to book your half, half a million in any other organisation, keeping somewhere going, Have you not noticed in your travels around this sceptered isle that the museum idea 
defines half of Britain. Mm. I mean, we're reliving the past in in many forms. I mean, people dressing up in medieval gear, the the, the whole uh, Jane Austen era, the period pieces on television, and yet and give the twentieth century a chance. Listen, television loves bonnets, simple as that. But it's interesting also that we are we really interested in our in our history. Are we interested? In, I mean, it's another subject. But what would you quickly? What would you want money? If I gave you half a million, what would you want money into Alexandra to spruce it up and say, right, that's worth keeping? I would just like to say, yeah, I'll be there. You are. I'm well, absolutely my oh, I mean, I, I'm sorry. Wild, wild land, forests, wetlands. Okay. John, anything from our history we ought to preserve? And we don't. Well, I think uh, our portrait gallery should get much more opportunity to be more open to to everyone. That's right. That's it. Bletchley Park doesn't get a penny. That's it for this oh, week. Yes, My thanks to John Dickey, mm-hmm. Rosemary Hollis and Alexander Nekrasov. Mm-hmm. Uh, John is here on next, uh, SITREP next Thursday, 4 o'clock UK time. You can listen again and podcast anytime you like at bfbs.com forward slash SITREP. Mm-hmm. We're going. Talk to you later. Mary's in the hut. <laughs>